The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, Say this when you pray, Father, may your name be held holy, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive each one who is in debt to us, and do not put us to the test. He also said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him in the middle of the night to say, My friend, lend me three loaves, because a friend of mine on his travels has just arrived at my house, and I have nothing to offer him. And the man answers from inside the house, Do not bother me. The door is bolted now, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up to give it to you. I tell you, if the man does not get up and give it for the friendship's sake, persistence will be enough to make him get up and give his friend all he wants. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Search, and you will find knock and the door will be opened to you for the one who asks always receives the one who searches always finds the one who knocks will always have the door opened to him what father among you would hand his son a stone when he asks for bread or hand him a snake instead of a fish or hand him a scorpion if he asks for an egg if you then who are evil Know how to give your children what is good. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord. A communion between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's where we are, and that's really why we're here. In fact, it's the reason we exist at all, to be brought into that communion of life and love. Before we broke open the word we've just heard, I would like to invite us to pray those words that Jesus gave his disciples. For whatever intentions we have, let's just close our eyes and say the the prayer that, that Christ himself taught his disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Isn't that amazing? How readily we can pray these words. We don't need them up on a PowerPoint, but they're really etched on our heart as if on stone. May I ask, is there anyone who has prayed these words already this morning before coming to Mass? Anyone? Yeah. Who has it as a staple in their daily daily prayer life? This is part of the heritage. See, when Jesus was pressed by his followers of how to pray, he gives them this very, very tight formula. I can remember for as long as, as I think back in my childhood, my pattern in my family was at the start of the day, my mum, my dad, my brother and I would gather in my parents' bedroom, we'd kneel at the foot of their bed, and we'd read one of the Psalms, and then we'd pray the Lord's Prayer. 
And if it was a special day like a birthday or an anniversary, my dad would pray a, a spontaneous prayer. We're in a different chapter of our lives now as a family, and of course I live in Gladstone with you, but I think this pattern formed me in ways that are too deep to express um, today before you. Nowadays I pray what we call the divine office or the liturgy of hours, the breviary, and we have the, the prayer of the church over there that we pray over Saturday morning. And this is pro predominantly the Psalms, and the Lord's Prayer is in there. So it's almost like the rhythm of my life in the domestic church of the Acharya household readied me for the universal prayer of the church in the liturgy. This formula that Jesus gave, we know through and through, and not just us Catholics, but really all Christians would take to heart these very familiar words, which the church calls the pattern for every prayer and the firm foundation of all our prayers and petitions. Did Jesus intend for us to write these words down and memorize them? I don't know, but evidently that's what we've done. And therefore, he must be pleased to have allowed us to do that. It's become part of our heritage. I have to say, I think it is providential that we hear this gospel on the same weekend that Rob visited us here, because the event of having Rob here and what he shared speaks to the gospel and the gospel back to that, to that content. As we know, Rob is the founder of a national Catholic ministry called Men Alive. It's nearly 20 years into its growth and it's really expanded dramatically in the past two decades. I've heard Rob speak on a good few occasions now and in a range of contexts to varying audiences, sometimes to our seminarians, sometimes to youth, sometimes to men of, of different um, brackets of, of age, retirees, younger men, all sorts of things. And I had the privilege of studying for a good part of my journey in the seminary with Isaac Thousand, his son. If you see on the poster back there, Isaac's face is somewhere in the middle, I think, and um, he's set to be ordained a deacon in November of this year. Rob has a beautiful family, which no doubt has been a major place in which his faith and his engagement with the faith has been tested and, and tilled to, to bear fruit, lasting fruit, I think, for the church in Australia and beyond. Rob shared information and anecdotes at the three engagements hosted by the parish, Friday night at Chanel College, Saturday morning at St. Francis of Assisi, and uh, Saturday afternoon on the grass um, in Millennium Esplanade in, um, in Tannum. Something became very apparent to me over the course of these sharings, though I fear I will not be able to communicate it very well because it's a mysterious thing that I've intuited. I feel a bit like St. Augustine when he was asked about the topic of time. Augustine quite hilariously said, what is time? If no one asks me, I know what it is. But if someone asks me to explain it, I do not know what it is. Well, I feel a little bit like this when it comes to the topic of manhood and fatherhood, and for that matter, womanhood and motherhood, which I'd be infinitely less qualified to say anything about. But isn't that a great definition? You know, if only we could write that kind of an answer on our exams. I'm about to make some assertions, and I am a little anxious about them. But let me start by saying this. Man and woman, we know, are created, each with their own infinite dignity, each distinct and complementary, neither before or after another, neither greater than 
or lesser than the other. Each called into the communion we acknowledged at the beginning of this Mass and at the beginning of this homily, the communion of the Holy Trinity. I think we can all assent to that. What I'm about to say here, I don't want to be taken as anything ideological. It's really an intuition, and I think the readings fortify that intuition. And the intuition is this, that there is a communion with our Father, both our Heavenly Father and our earthly fathers, that has really a huge repercussion for the family, for society, and, and even for eternity. There are certain things that are statistically demonstrable. You know, we have these statistics, they're readily available on the internet. 60% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaways. 85% of all children with behavioral disorders. 80% of heinous crimes committed against women and children. 85% of youth imprisonment. 70% of high school dropouts. All of these come from fatherless homes. It's a common denominator. On the flip side, an active fatherhood lessens the likelihood of a child repeating a grade or dropping out of school, and it increases academic success and enjoyment in school and engagement in extracurricular activities. One statistic said that daughters in a fatherless home are 50% more likely to enter into a serious relationship as teenagers, bear children, and then are 90% more likely to suffer separation in that relationship. Whereas the stability, health, and joy of that family increases and is modeled for the future when the father is a father, present and active. What's my anxiety in raising these statistics? Because I think there's a natural implication that really trivializes the, the constant active, diligent presence of the mother. And that's not at all what I intend to do. I do not want to trivialize the tremendous work that mothers are doing, living profoundly sacrificial lives, oftentimes carrying the greater part of the weight or alone for their children and in society. These statistics might suggest that no matter what a mother does in her family, the fruit is doomed in a way to follow these kinds of statistics. I actually asked Rob about this on Friday night. I said, Rob, what is it about the extravagance of fatherhood and extravagant fatherhood on display that seems to incite pride that is not necessarily felt when, for example, an athlete pulls his hamstring and his mother comes out and runs and embraces him and jogs alongside him to the finish line. You, know, you imagine that scene with a father and a mother and somehow it I don't know, it, 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 it cajoles a different reaction from us, for better or for worse. And I appreciated what Rob said. He said, women are heroic in these ways all the time, constantly. And Rob didn't say these words, but it seemed to me as we were speaking that for men, there's a choice that's necessary. Men need to choose heroism. It doesn't happen automatically. They need to choose it, aware of their own personal frailty and their potential to reap an abundant harvest, either of joy or of misery. The legacy of a man seems to teeter in a way over the edge of profound goodness, and on the other hand, profound lack 
and depravity. It seems like the stakes are some, somehow higher. And I don't know why that is. It's a mysterious thing. On the one hand, there's profound selflessness, and on the other hand, there's profound callousness and selfishness. And thus really comes the crux of what I feel I need to say here. And it's about communion. Communion with our fathers, both heavenly and our earthly fathers. This communion, or lack thereof, has <coughs> profound repercussions at all levels of, of the human life. So let's turn to the readings then and see what God is presenting to us. Firstly, we have this encounter with Abraham and God, depicted in the three angels that appear to Abraham. And last Sunday we heard him serving them and giving them a meal. It's noteworthy that Abraham speaks with one of the angels while the other two proceed down into Sodom and Gomorrah to go and see what's going on over there. In a few moments we're going to pray the creed and you'll notice that we profess a faith in, yes, a triune God, the Father and the Son and Spirit who proceed forth from the Father on mission, essentially, into the world. We become acquainted with the Father through the Son, through the Spirit. We heard in that reading that it's in the Spirit that we have the ability to call God our Father. Abraham is talking to God. What about justice, goodness, fairness? Abraham petitions God, not for his own sake, but for the sake of those for whom Abraham is concerned. It's a kind of fatherly concern, if you like. And I love this conversation because it's comical, really. It's a, it's a strange negotiation between God and this essentially child, Abraham, even though he's an old man at the time. This encounter should be an encouragement for us in our conversations with God. And really, that's what prayer is, a conversation, two verses together, God's verse and our verse. It would have been perfectly sensible in a way for God to ignore Abraham or to say, little child, I'm God and you're not. So be quiet and let me do what I am doing. I don't have to explain myself to you. But in fact, that's not what we hear from God, is it? We see this profound indulgence. The Father condescends, and in the best possible way. Sometimes we're jarred by the concept of condescension. We say, don't, don't condescend to me. But see, God is utterly transcendent. God is in the highest heavens and even above that. When God condescends, it's a beautiful uplifting of us. It doesn't make us feel small, it makes us feel beloved. As the psalm says, the Lord is on high, yet he looks on the lowly. This encounter should encourage our prayer. God indulges us, and he loves to hear what we say. It takes courage and humility, but Abraham girds himself and brings these petitions to the Father. And he discovers what we hear in the psalm as well. I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and love, which excel all we ever knew of you. Abraham tests God, really. He says, are you really going to do this? Are you good? Are you true? Are you just? Are you merciful? Who's more merciful, Abraham or God? Aside from prayer, this ought to encourage, I think, our conversations with our elders, with our parents, and perhaps most of all with our fathers. I remember towards the end of my first year in the seminary, I, I don't know, I guess I was having a maturity crisis. I have those occasionally. Um, and, and the formators were sort of challenging me on this 
And the topic of my relationship with my father came up. And it became evident to me that, at least at the time, I felt like a little boy to my dad. And I was happy with that, because it's nice and simple to be a little boy. In, in a way, I never want to lose that, and probably I never will. But I did have to intentionally make a step forward in growing up. And so I sought my dad out at the next holiday I had, and I said, Dad, can we go for a walk? And he said, yes. And I asked him, Dad, do you see me as a boy or as a man? And I think the question caught him off guard. And he said, Ashwin, I see you as a man, and I'm proud of you. And he, and he said many things about the years that had gone by. I was 23 at the time. But then he said, you will always be my boy. You will always be my boy. I was happy with that because the two things, my growth and my relationship with him were safeguarded and it was beautiful. In a way, that was the only conversation of that nature that I had with my dad, but maybe we're due for another one. Uh, it, was, it was graced, really very graced. There's a last point I want to make here. It's about the obvious difference between our Heavenly Father and our earthly fathers. And I probably don't need to say this, but I'm going to say it. One is God, and one is not. One is perfect, and the other is not. One is all-powerful, the other is very powerful, but also extraordinarily weak. One is sovereign over everything, and the other is at times anxious about everything. One is utterly wise, and knows us better than we know ourselves. The other can at times seem bankrupt of empathy and understanding and patience. One knows himself completely. The other is destined to discover himself slowly and by sweat and pain. One is utterly without lack, while the other is pr prone to damage and fatigue, gathers trauma, and if that trauma is not transformed, it's transferred to the next generation. If mistakes and hurts are not redeemed, they're just repeated again and again, like a recurring nightmare, wreaking havoc. Men, what are we to do with the fact that we are, in so many ways, utterly unlike our God? What are we to do with our fatherhood, which at times so poorly reflects the fatherhood of God Almighty? Well, Paul tells us in that reading, he talks about sin and wound and shame. You know what he says? Nail it to the cross. That's frankly what he says. See that reading. Take it and nail it to the cross along with Christ. We have to die to ourselves, otherwise the death in us will always be there. It'll keep multiplying, wreaking havoc on the world. So finally, I've spoken already too long, but I, I want to conclude with the Lord's Prayer because Jesus gives us this pattern of prayer and it's no accident. We're going to pray it later on in the Mass, but, but think of the words. There's several petitions that are made. We address God, our Father, because look around. These are our brothers and sisters. We're all one family here. We say, give us this day our daily bread because we come with our hungers and no one else can fill them. We come saying, forgive us our sins, because yeah, we've poorly negotiated life and we need to repair. There's this beautiful insight that C.S. Lewis had. He says, 
something to the effect of, or if someone's wronged me, I can say to them, I forgive you for that incident. But it'd be nonsense for me to say, I forgive you for everything wrong you've done. I have no business forgiving that. They didn't do that to me. But see Jesus here, and think of the many times he says to those who come to him, I forgive you your many sins, your sins, however infinite number of them there are, are forgiven. Because in fact, Jesus was there. He was the one suffering the offense. And therefore, he's the one who can forgive, redeem. Not that he's keeping count of it, but if we want to restore any relationship anywhere, we come to him. He was there, and he is there still. Let's pray this prayer one last time, if you don't mind. And I'd ask us to hold all that we've just thought of, the, the world with all its need, maybe this community and our families and even ourselves with all our needs. We come and we petition our God who's eager to indulge us. Let's say together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.